When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, I shall speak a little bit softly for those Man City fans that still have a hangover from Saturday night. You, you were out watching some comedy it wasn't the brilliant game, Kieran, but it was worth it for the potty mouth interviews from the Man City players afterwards, which were <laughs> hilarious. Also, uh, all, all joking aside, I actually got quite emotional when Kyle Walker was being interviewed afterwards. Uh, he didn't particularly seem to want to be interviewed because he said himself he was uh, almost lost for words, but he, he talked about his mother. He remembered a, one particular day when his mother couldn't afford a pound for ice cream for all the kids. Uh, and, and now here he was. And now you thought, do you know, at the heart of it, you forget that sort of level of commitment from, from parents who were there all the way through. I mean, Kyle Walker's journey, for want of a better word, started when he was five years of age. And now there he is winning the Champions League. Still furious that he didn't start the game, by the way. But, never, <laughs> but, but yeah, congratulations to Man City. I think you'd have to be a very churlish football fan or your United supporter not to... Not to acknowledge that City fans only 20 years ago were two two divisions below the Premier League and now they're winning the Champions League. Yeah, yeah, I've uh I lived in Manchester for 40 years. Uh I, I played for Trafford Cricket Club and and my mate the skunk, who I used to open the bowl with bowling with, he was a well, he still is a massive City fan, and he had to put up with a lot of flack in what was a uh, – it was a fairly even dressing room, but uh, clearly the United fans certainly had the upper hand in terms of uh, trophies. And given that uh, sort of all, all that all that City had to go on was, was Eddie Large – as their celebrity <laughs> fan, <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't a lot of bragging rights. Um, um, so yeah, good good luck to all the city fans. Enjoy yourself. I'll, I'll say this only once, Kieran. But was he known as the skunk because he was a stranger to the shower, or because of what he sold for a living? <laughs> well, it was close to the former than the latter. That's all I say. Uh, okay. That's, that's uh, well. Let's let's hope he's listening, and we've reminded him of happy days when <laughs> his team was shit and he smelt a bit. So it's questions day, Kieran, and we've got some very interesting uh, essay-length questions, um, uh, and one mystery coming up about uh, the connections between the USA and Wakefield, which I'm looking forward to discussing. But there is one significant piece of news, Kieran, before we get into the questions. It's It's been a time of uncertainty for Leeds United fans, but it looks like the ownership of the club has now been resolved. Yes, it would appear that uh, Leeds United's majority shareholder, Andrea Radrizzani, has accepted uh, an offer from the San Francisco 49ers investment arm. Now, lots of people think that, therefore, uh, we are going to have a a multi-sport business here. To a certain extent, the 49ers investment arm are completely independent of the, the sports entity itself. It just happens to be that they're using the name and, and, and the credibility and the, the reputation that comes with the name. Um, from from my understanding and, and talking to some people who talk to some people, etc., it would appear that there has been uh, a bit of reticence from some of the investors themselves in the 49ers investment arm as to whether this deal should go ahead. You know, it did take leads longer, I think, than they expected, I think longer than anybody expected for them to to get back to the, the Premier League in the first place. And no doubt somebody will have pointed out that with average losses in the championship of, of £20 million a year, if you're just looking at Leeds United from an investment perspective, uh, it could be a very uh, expensive exercise. And I think that will therefore impact upon the price 
that's been paid. Now, the, the stories that are doing the rounds is that the uh, agreed price is £170 million. I believe that Mr. Radrizani bought his controlling interest in Leeds United for around about 45 to 50, and then he built up his shareholding. So it probably cost him somewhere in the region of 90 to 100. He'll have underwritten some losses since then. So he'll still come out of it with a, uh, I, I suspect he'll come out with it smiling and a profit, uh, but not as big a profit had Leeds been in the Premier League this summer, where, again, reading reading the press, it would appear that the uh, asking price or the agreed price was somewhere in the region of 400 to 450 million. So it was a very expensive relegation from Rad Rizani's perspective, but given that he wants to and I believe has acquired Sampdoria, um, then then he clearly needs, uh, you know, he needs to take money from Peter to give to Paul uh, in effect, or, or Paolo, um, should that be. Um, so interesting times for Leeds fans. Um we don't know what the objectives are. Uh, you know, we have had somebody from we've had Padrick from uh, from the Forty ers on this show. Yeah. Um, so perhaps he'll, you know, we'll, we'll we'll reach out to him to see uh, what what their plans are. I'm sure Leeds fans will be interested. Uh, it was it was a classic case of one of those relationships that starts off really positively and then rapidly declines. And we, we've all been in those. We've, we've all been in those Leeds fans. You're not alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just, I was just trying to think of the most rapid decline in a relationship, Kieran. But my Rolodex is going to take a lot longer than <laughs> the time we have to get through. Um, two questions, Kieran. So, first of all, is Radrazani will he now have no link at all with Leeds, or is he retaining some shares? No, it looks as if it's going to be a clean break. Right. Um, I think I think that makes sense when uh, things have broken down in, in terms of how fans and owners perceive each other it's best not to uh it's best not to leave anything behind and just move on you know, we saw uh, in in the case of Sunderland with um Simon Donald and sorry, Stuart Donald Simon Donald the editor of Viz of course yep. um and and our our friend Mr Meffin um that uh, probably wasn't in their interests to to be hanging around uh, at Sunderland so so they've new, now moved on to, to Eastleigh and Charlton respectively uh, it would appear um so yeah I think it will be a 100% ownership by the 49ers they will try to use their now their familiarity with uh, being in the entertainment industry and that's how they see the 49ers to to lever to leverage and to monetize the the Leeds United brand because we all know it's, it's a very strong one. Leeds United fans, uh, you know, they're they're pretty vociferous, not just in in West Yorkshire, but uh, they've got a big international fan base as well. Yeah, you see, if Leeds go up, Kieran, this be another American owner in the Premier League. We're creeping closer to that fourteen majority. The, the second question on the Leeds things, Kieran, you you say that word on the street. Um, yeah, I presume this is the football finance accountancy street, accountancy avenue, <laughs> SW1. Is uh, 170 million, you think, as a championship club, 400 to 450 million as a Premier League club? I imagine Forbes probably valued at about 8 billion. But do you think <laughs> your instinct is 170 million and four to 450 million reasonable figures? Are they likely to be the actual figures? Yes. They are. They would be my gut reaction because Leeds do have three years of parachute payments. They do have. I hate to say, it, saleable inventory. Inventory. Um, they players will players. Yes. Okay. Um, they they will sell out Ellen Road this season, regardless of the division, um, and their their merchandise sales and, and their commercial revenues were higher than most of the Premier League clubs, probably higher than half of the Premier League clubs, even when Leeds were in the Championship. So they've got a lot of positives going for them. And it's a case of yeah, rolling the dice now in terms of getting back to the Premier League and and getting hold of those additional revenues. What I suspect we're looking at is £170 million plus the equivalent of, of transfer add-ons. If, if they go back after one season, you know, X million, if it takes two, three or five seasons, then it's going to taper to lower figures. Mm-hmm. Certainly when we've looked at other deals which have involved clubs being sold 
having been relegated, there did, did seem to be um, in the main some form of knock-on fee should they make a rapid return to higher echelons. Well, uh, hopefully Mr. Radrazani can make a slightly more rapid return to social media now than he has done, <laughs> at least until Sampdoria fans started on him when they're not doing very well. It's it's questions day, uh, Kieran, and our first question comes from uh, Nobby Clark, who I assume is our uh, old friend from the Porson's Arms, but traditionally, of course, uh, in the 40s, 50s and 60s, all people called Clark were nicknamed Nobby. For some reason, never quite got to the bottom of that. Something to do with the civil service, I'm told. But Nobby Clark has this question, Kieran. I know it's Nobby because he's always banging on about this in the Porson's arms, essentially. (laughs) Uh, It's an interesting one, Kieran, because we've spoken a lot recently about the fact that it's fans who get punished for the misdemeanours of club owners and directors. So Nobby has a potential solution for that. So Nobby Clark says, UEFA have put several clubs on the naughty step in recent years, but usually it issues relatively paltry fines to each one. And this got me thinking, over the past decade or so, the UK has started to follow the common US practice of applying such fines or penalties to individual directors of companies, usually as well as the company itself, but occasionally in isolation. While this started with clear legislative breaches, employment law, health and safety, etc., there has been a swing towards including alleged breaches of their duty as a director. In such circumstances, UK law precludes the company from providing or financing any such fines or legal costs associated there too. Ergo, there's a direct impact on the director themselves. Is there any reason why UEFA couldn't do the same? And if so, do you think this might dissuade clubs from flaunting FFP and the like? He puts it more directly than that. In the Porson's arms, Kieran. <laughs> yeah, I hope so as well. More, more succinctly than that. Um, <laughs> this is a similar, it may have been Nobby who asked it before, but we've had a similar question. Um, I mean, put simply, Kieran, why can't you punish the directors financially rather than the fans with a points deduction? Well, th- this is more of a legal than a finance issue, first of all. But I, th- I think there are a, a, a number of hurdles um, first of all, the directors could appeal and say that domestic law overrides UEFA. Um, secondly, if they are fined, what happens if between the time of the alleged offence and the time that UEFA finds them, they move on to another job and they're no longer employed by the football club? Um, so I, I, think, I think there are some practical and challenging issues. Um, Also, uh, what I would say is that if you've got a board of directors, um, they all have an individual skill set. So the commercial director might know diddly squat when it comes to finances and amortization, uh, artificially increasing revenues, hiding hiding wages left, right and centre. They might be completely unaware. So it's sort of it's a bit like that that situation we used to have in school. You know, somebody had let off a stink bomb, um, and the the teacher would says, uh, "I'm putting everybody in detention unless the person who did it owns up." And uh, yeah, then nobody owns up, and, and you all end up in detention. You go, "Well, you know, I didn't do it." And at the same time, you're not going to snitch. So um, it, it does seem harsh to uh, punish those directors who have no no knowledge of these affairs. Um, would it have a deterrent effect? Well, you only commit an offence if you think that you're not going to be found out. You know, you know that's that's the nature of, of of crime and acts. And I would also say, when when it comes to um, these financial uh, issues, it, it isn't a black and white situation. You know, there there are nuances, there there are subtleties and shades of grey in terms of um, whether you are pushing things to the limit or whether you're overstepping the line. So I just think it's it, it, it's nice in theory, but I don't think it would work in practice. And then you'd have to say, well, yeah, how much are these fines going to be? Because if we take a look at the Premier League, 
um, you know, the the average uh, salary of of a direct of the highest paid directors in the the Premier League is probably around about nine hundred thousand pounds a year. Now, if you if you if you go to Belgium, if you go to Portugal, um, if if you go to Slovenia, um, the figures are going to be far lower. So, how do you go about setting an appropriate tariff? Because what might be um, and a, a deterrent in in the Premier League could completely, you know, destroy the the finances of an individual who's who's working, you know, let's say, in Armenia or or as Bakhchan, um, for for a local club. Um, so I, I think there's there's a series of, of practical, and I'm sure some of our our legal friends will, will point out legal. Uh, restrictions and, and hurdles that would be very difficult to overcome. And then finally, what happens if UEFA themselves do something naughty? Which, let's face it, they're not they're not cherubic, are they? And do do, do UEFA end up finding their own directors? Um, or if does a club take, uh, you know, would a club therefore take uh, UEFA to CAS or, or a similar uh, a, a similar body because they think that UEFA has done something which isn't in the interest of football. So it's it's messy is the simple simple answer. I, I think UEFA could look at finding the directors who left tens of thousands of Man City and Inter Milan fans boiling in coaches on the way to and from the game on Saturday night, Kieran, mm. because as many people have pointed out, UEFA seem to be able to organise a football match, all right, but can't work out ways of getting fans to and from it safely and on time. I'm glad we've cleared up uh, that question for Nobby because that's going to give me about 10 minutes more drinking time <laughs> in the pauses before home games, in the 10 minutes in which I say, Nobby, do I look like I know? I'm, I'm neither a legal nor finance. I, I host a football finance pod. I don't take much notice of any of the answers. Um, <laughs> our next question, Kieran, comes from Jack Stace, and it's an interesting take on a subject that we've talked about a lot, which is the cost of hosting a World Cup. And Jack says, TIFO Football have done a great video looking at the cost-benefit analysis of hosting the World Cup. It seems that all things considered, doing that is a very bad deal financially for the host country. The demands of FIFA to keep 100% of profit from ticket sales and also have all of their own activities and those of their sponsors completely tax-free seems totally unreasonable. My question is, do you think the increase of countries with authoritarian governments hosting the World Cup in recent years is at least partly due to democratic leaders balking at the raw deal offered by FIFA? Of course, the next World Cup, Kieran, is in three so-called democratic countries. They are mm. democratic countries. But you know, just know Saudi Arabia are desperate to hold a World Cup in the next uh, three or four cycles. So I think it's a very interesting question. It, it, increasingly, do you think there will be so-called democratic countries that are, are balking at, at this deal? Well, it's not just the deal you get from FIFA. If you look at the cost of hosting any major a sporting tournament, and I think we can include the likes of the Olympics. You, you can even narrow, you even look at Eurovision. Yeah, Eurovision is, is can be very expensive. Uh, remember, remember that when Ireland used to win it every year. Yeah, and and in the end, they sort of yeah, they, they were they, they were prepared to sort of lob in Jedward with with a song <laughs> just to make sure that they didn't win it uh, because it was costing them an absolute fortune. Um, if you take a look at economic impact reports and, and there has been some academic research done with regards to this every world cup has lost an absolute fortune economically because by the time you take into consideration infrastructure costs if, if we take a look at brazil in 2014 for example they built new stadiums in areas of brazil where there was no demand for football but they wanted to be able to say hey look we're going to yeah, brazil jesus christ it's a big country um and uh we want we want to spread the love and those stadia are now you know they, they were uh hosting matches 35 to forty thousand, and now perhaps a tenth of that i know that i've been to um I went to South America, South Africa for the for the 2010 World Cup, and uh, yeah, I was fortunate enough to see matches in Cape Town and Port Elizabeth. Absolutely fantastic experience. The South African hosts were amazing. Meeting other fans, uh, yeah, it was it, it was a four week long party, 
And like the best parties, um, there's there's a there's a hangover, but this hangover is a financial one as much as anything else. And I remember going back to uh, Cape Town with the Baroness a few years later. I said, "Oh yeah, I'll take you to take you to the Cape Town Stadium because hey, yeah, that's how I roll." Um, and I was absolutely staggered to see the state of disrepair and reading the press locally and, and talking to some people they're saying hold on you this, this is costing us hospitals this is costing us schools because we now have to maintain the stadium which is never being used and he's and you know, effectively slowly just you know just get, getting worse and worse by the week and the month um and, and it was a wasted resource so you've got Infrastructure costs. You've also got sometimes, you know, uh, train lines and airports uh, being created for these short-term events. And, and you or I, but, but remember when? Remember when the Pope went to the west of Ireland, uh-huh. and they and they, they and the and the, uh, the Irish government built uh, and extended an air an airport um, just because it could take a seven four seven, which would which would arrive in Ireland once, but because they wanted the Pope there, um, they they underwrote those costs. Well, it's 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 really dumb. Economically, you've then got the the increased security costs, the increased security risks, and then when it comes to tax, uh, FIFA roll up and they say, "Ah, oh, remember, guys, we're a charity. None of that tax nonsense is being paid by us or the players." And you go, "Well, actually, how on earth are you going to make money?" So the only World Cup, in my view, which has made money this century was the 2006 World Cup, which took place in Germany. And the reason why that made a bit of money and the the, the numbers were it made a, a 0.2% impact um, over a, a one-month period as far as the German economy was concerned because the infrastructure was there, the stadium was there, the transport links were there, the hotels were, were there. Um, and, and it's even sort of you know, little things. People say, well, what about all of the extra tourists? Well, this is the way that it works. If I if I'm thinking of going to South Africa in 2010, and I'm thinking, oh, then there's a World Cup there. I'm not going to go. I'll go somewhere else because prices will be higher. It'll be more crowded. So yes, you get more football fans turning up to these tournaments, but regular tourists actually find it a bit of a turnoff because the prices go go through the roof, and uh, yeah, it's it, it's more difficult to do the, the regular tourist activities. So you have to look at it on a macro perspective, and uh, every every tournament has lost money, with the exception of Germany. Brazil was an absolute disaster. South Africa was an absolute disaster. We don't know the numbers for Russia because Russia is a mafiosa country. But if it's anything like the Winter Olympics in, was it Sochi, um, as far as uh, Russia was concerned, uh, you know, contracts were being awarded to friends of friends of friends of oligarchs and, and leaders. Um, it, it's a, it's uh, a, a mafiosa distribution of, uh, of wealth, um, and it certainly doesn't benefit the country as a whole. Yeah, several things, Kieran. I, I don't know why I, I refer to Canada Mexico and America as as so called Democrat. I sounded like Ed when he was seventeen, and I say we live in a democratic country. Go yes, yeah, so called. Um, secondly, Kieran, are you suggesting that when the Holy Father visited Ireland, that rather than land in a seven three seven, he got the ferry from Stranraer to Larne, and then waited for the bus across like the rest of us had to do? Because well, he should be able to walk it, shouldn't he? Well, the water bits, yeah. yeah. That's, that's, yeah you see, what you're doing there is mixing them up with the actual God. Um, and also, one there is, I was never very good at geography. I have no real interest in it. I don't I don't really care where rubber comes from, and that you have to tap it out of a tree. And partly because our geography teacher literally would say things the way you did, like, Jesus Christ, Brazil's a big country. That was a well, little, it is. That was a little, we only got taught about Catholic countries in, with hindsight. <laughs> so... If they weren't Catholics, we didn't get taught about it. So which is why I know a lot more about Ireland and Portugal than I do about Russia. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by Manscaped. If you haven't heard already, it's smooth sack summer. When you're playing in the summer sun, make sure you're scaped from pubes to bum. That's right, this is the summer to keep your balls cool while still looking hot with Manscaped. The leaders in below-the-waist grooming are making sure we all have a ball this summer by giving our pants partners 
everything they need to stay fresh. It's time to get ready for summer by going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with the code Price of Football. The Manscaped Performance Package 4.0 has everything you need to prepare that summer bod. Their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade. It's got a 7,000 RPM motor, a new multifunction on off switch, which can engage a travel lock, and gives you the ability to turn the 4000K LED spotlight on and off when need for a more precise shave. You can also use Manscaped's liquid formulations to keep that freshness even at the hottest summer barbecues. So get 20% off and free shipping with the code PRICEOFOOTBALL at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code PRICEOFOOTBALL. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion... You do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone. Whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football, and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Ian Webb has uh, a question that's been fascinating me, uh, Kieran, not the question so much itself, because, again, this is another area we've been discussing at length, but because it's a specific question related to Ian, I'm happy to talk about this particular angle, but I'm just fascinated how this came about, because Ian says, I'm an American supporter of an English non-league club, Wakefield AFC. Um We've talked about Wakefield before, Kieran. I said it's one of mm. the, the biggest towns without a football, professional football team, I believe. I'm sure you'll remind us. Uh, but I'm fascinated, Ian. I, I would love you to let us know, Ian, how you became a Wakefield AFC fan. I'm going to guess it's a family thing, but uh, I, I, that's the sort of thing I love about football when somebody announces in an American accent that, no, no, I'm actually a big fan of Wakefield AFC. Uh, but Ian says it's nearly impossible for me to watch Wakefield matches. The only games that can be streamed on Facebook and YouTube are the midweek ones. I work full-time, so I can't ever watch the midweek games due to the time difference between the US and the UK. I'm certainly available to watch the Saturday games, but the club can never stream them due to the UK's nonsensical blackout rules. Who does it benefit to have these TV streaming Blackouts. Now, we know there's a change coming up in the streaming rules, Kieran, but I'm assuming that won't affect Wakefield AFC. That's right. And also, if we take a look at the recently signed deal between the EFL and Sky, although the number of matches has quadrupled from around about 200 200 odd to 1,000 a season, the 3 p.m. blackout has been maintained. And there's no indication that the 3 p.m. blackout is going to be withdrawn by the Premier League either. Um, It's an interesting situation in the sense that it appears to be a... UK issue only. If you take a look at the uh, the rules as far as European football is concerned, there is no 3pm blackout yeah. um, in terms of what can cannot be broadcast. The argument for the blackout is, ironically, 
to protect clubs such as Wakefield AFC themselves. Mm. Uh, It's effectively saying if there is no football being broadcast live, then there is a greater chance that fans will get off their backsides, get off the sofa and physically go and watch a match and that will help clubs in terms of gate receipts and therefore that will assist clubs in terms of sustainability, will encourage more people to play the game as well. Um, The evidence, I I think it's fair to say, is is fairly spotty um, in terms of the support of that and this uh, this was one of the ideas or one of the um, claims originally made by Bob Lord of Burnley, who yeah. I think it's fair to say, not the nicest man in the history of football. Um, in fact, one of the most unlikable, in my view, uh, given his uh, somewhat, uh, well, I won't even say anything. Um, so that's the position. Now, is there any support for this impact on grassroots? Well, what we can do is that we can look at the level of attendances that take place for midweek matches, um, ironically, again, in the UK. And if you are supporting a club in the Championship or League One or League Two, playing matches on a Tuesday or Wednesday is a pretty common occurrence. And what we see is that when there are matches being broadcast live in the Champions League, on average, there is... Lower attendance. Sorry, there are lower attendances in EFL matches, but it's not particularly significant. Um, so there is a case for revisiting the the blackout rule. It is you know, it is twenty twenty three when when these rules were introduced. It was thirty to forty years ago. Um, things things have changed with regards to that. Um, and as as for Wakefield uh, population, three hundred and thirty three thousand. Average attendance at AFC Wakefield is probably in the region of four to five hundred. So uh, it, it's good to see a, a club set up um, in, in the town. I appreciate it is a uh, it, it's a it's it's a rugby area, a you know, rugby league area. If you take you know, the likes of Featherstone and and Castleford are are part of Wakefield, and of course you have Wakefield Trinity itself. Um, but uh, I, I was amazed. Um, I found out you know, the, the, the Wakefield area was so populous. And if you compare that to somewhere such as Burnley, yeah, Burnley's got a population of, of 70,000 and, and it's hosting a Premier League football club. Um, there, there, is, there is an opportunity in Wakefield if that's what the people of Wakefield want. And, you know, and, and if, if they, they prefer to either A, have have a grassroots team and b they they prefer to watch other sports uh you know and, and there's a, there's a great there's a great case for saying you know we we shouldn't be worried about towns not having football clubs because rugby league's a fantastic sport and cricket's a fantastic sport and if there's greater demand and interest in those sports well hats off to you yeah you see if wakefield had been a catholic city i would have known a lot more about it here and see that. <laughs> I, I suppose the problem for me in point of view in is, is obviously a committed Wakefield fan, but the trouble is there aren't enough of them around the world uh, to make changing the rules here so he can watch a game on Saturday mm. economically viable, are there? That's the, that's the issue. Yes, um, and um, there are normally ways of watching matches. Yeah, if, if, there's, if there's a camera with a feed there, mm. there's a way of watching that matches. But we, of course, do not condone piracy here on The Price of Football. Uh, we certainly don't. Not after somebody went to prison for eleven years a couple of weeks ago for, for doing exactly. That. Yes. Uh, yes, Bob Lord. I think for those of you who've been amused by Kieran's reference, Bob Lord is one of those people held up as the archetypal uh, uh, local boy made good. He was the owner of Burnley in the sixties and seventies. Had a uh, a large butcher business chain of shop. Was as Kieran says, he point blank refused to allow TV cameras into Burnley because he said even when uh, the BBC had done a deal when Match Today was going ahead, he wouldn't let them into Burnley uh, and made a grossly anti-Semitic comment about the people who ran the game and the country's finances at the time. A very unpleasant man. Uh, I don't want to discuss him in detail, but Google him and, and you'll come to your own conclusions about how unpleasant he was. The next question, Kieran, is from another American, from John Swift, Uh, And John says, as an American and a Tottenham fan, 
I have wondered what the financial impact is of having NFL games at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. How much does the NFL pay Spurs for hosting these games? And how are the ticket sales and TV income split between Spurs and the NFL? Is it comparable to what Spurs would make for a typical Premier League home match? Well, thank, thank you very much for this, John. Um, when we were live at Plymouth, we spoke to one of the directors of Plymouth Argyle. We did. Because uh, we, were the, we were the perineum <laughs> between Muse and Rod Stewart yeah. um, in terms of live acts at Home Park. Um, and one of the questions uh, asked of, the, of, of uh, Paul, the, the director, was yeah, how, how does the club make money from these type of events and he says it, it's quite simple we agree a hosting fee effectively yeah we we rent out the facilities for 48 hours agree a fee um and, and then there will potentially be side deals in terms of you know who gets it how how is the money from merchandise sales divided how is the money from catering sales divided and so on when it comes to spurs um i believe spurs record catering revenue um, arose in an NFL match. And the reason for this is that they put up the prices for NFL fans. Um, Now, I I don't know how much a pint of beer should cost, but I think it went to, I think it went from around about £5 to £6.90. Could have been higher than that. And and everything else, yeah, it was £12 for a burger. It was £9 for a hot dog. It's all prices, which you go, blimey, O'Reilly. That that does seem... um, that does seem a bit steep. So how much Spurs make overall, John, we're not able to determine that. All, all I would say is that Spurs' um, commercial revenues have risen to £183 million um, in the 21-22 season, which is a record level. And this is following this deal being signed and, of course, the, the, uh, the coming out of COVID and the impact this has. So Spurs do seem to be doing pretty well. Um Certainly, as far as the hospitality boxes are concerned for for those type of events, they are very lucrative as well. Um, So it's a smart, um, future-proofed model that they have because I I believe the pitch sort of rolls in and rolls out. So the, the football pitch is undamaged by the, uh, by, by the activities of the NFL players. Um, I, I, yeah, I've, I've said on more than one occasion, I think Spurs as a business, is uh, yeah, I, I'd give them an A or mm. an A star um, when it comes to uh, finances. Um, I I wouldn't necessarily say, do the same when it comes to football, but but this isn't a football show, and uh, therefore my opinion is worthless. Yeah, well, that's not true, Kieran. But let's—you're quite right. We'll get the lecture from Guy if we start talking about football again. I, I suppose as well from Tottenham's commercial point of view, the NFL fans are in their. Two, nearly three times as long as as normal football fans are, aren't they? As well, spending that extra money. That's right, and also if you take a look at the culture of NFL, where it is very much a stop-start game, um, the, the opportunities for people to to have more food and drink at, uh, at eye-watering prices. Mm. Because I know when I've been to the states, uh, myself and the Barons, we, we always try to take in a, a, you know, an American franchise event and, and we've done NBA and NHL and, and so on. Um, and, and I always thought, growing up as a kid, America's supposed to be cheap. Well, it ain't cheap at sporting events and, and by all it's, it's exactly the same if, if you're going to a concert as well. Uh, I, I know that the, my, my personal god, that is Robert Smith, has has been fighting to get prices down for Cure concerts, and, and he's had, ended up with a huge battle with Ticketmaster. Uh, but even, even so, the, the prices of, of merchandise, um, the way that the Cure deal with this, and, and I was quite surprised, is that they actually had their their stands outside of uh, London, outside of Wembley Stadium, because otherwise the the stadium company itself takes a huge slice and fans get priced out you know fans get ripped off for paying for merchandise as well yeah you know how producer guy doesn't like us talking about football he, he likes us talking about the cure even less we've we've ascertained this before <laughs> i would love to you know what i love nfl and I, I would love to go and see an nfl game at spurs or uh, a baseball game which i think is happening at, at wembley in the summer but since that episode of The Simpsons when Ned Flanders' wife got killed by a T-shirt cannon, 
I, I genuinely, <laughs> I'm not taking the risk. Uh, Chris Foreman has a question, Kieran, that many, many people asked us in person at the start of this season. And Chris says, uh, in the biggest and most watched league in the world, why didn't Nottingham Forest have a paying shirt sponsor this season? Which uh, indicates that this question was written around Christmas because they certainly for the second part of the season they did. But how much would that potentially have cost the club each week? There are many people amazed here. I mean, we talked uh, last week about the fact that Internazionale had a sponsor purely for the Champions League final. It seemed... Uh, very odd that Forrest didn't even go for a weekly sponsor at the start of the season. Yes. um, Again, I've sort of put my ear to the ground with regards to this issue. It would appear that Forrest flew too close to the sun and and they demanded a fee in the region of £10 million for a front-of-shirt deal. It's fair to say that what we would call the middle classes of the Premier League. Yeah, we know who the elite are, and everybody else is effectively middle class. Um, are looking in the region of six to eight million pounds. Yeah, you you might if you've got a, a long term relationship, or if you're one of those bigger clubs in the middle classes, you might get a wee bit more. But you know, e- even Newcastle were getting, uh, I, I believe, somewhere in the region of you know seven and a half, eight million pounds from Fun eighty eight. So um, Forest went in. They pitched high. They said, we're not prepared to compromise. And sponsors said, okay, fair enough. We'll, we, we, don't, we don't think we're getting value for money. Um, so, therefore, they, they went the first half of the season uh, without a sponsor. Uh, to be fair to Forrest, they, they, they then agreed effectively a charity deal with, uh, with UNICEF, I believe, or a branch of UNICEF. And that was a, a, a deal where Forrest weren't getting any money, but at least uh, we were raising the profile of a very worthwhile cause. Um, sometimes I think... Uh, clubs do get a little bit giddy when when they arrive at the Premier League. If we go back as recently as 27-18, when Huddersfield Town were promoted, from what I understand, they they only got around about £1.5 million for for their first year uh, revenues uh, as far as front of shirt was concerned. That would still be 10 times what they would be picking up in the the championship. But we, we are... Given this constant story, you know, the championship playoff is the most lucrative match in world football. Uh, it's, it's stars in your eyes. It's the promised land. It's you know, gold at the end of the rainbow. All, all, all of this narrative comes through, um, but it doesn't necessarily uh, convert into as big as bigger numbers as people would anticipate. Hmm. Our next question, Kieran, uh, is the sort that you love. It's a proper economics question, and it comes from Lewis Parker. Uh, And Lewis Parker says, Kwasi Kwarteng's mini-budget last year got me thinking about how international transfers are conducted and whether a currency crash could cause transfer negotiations to break down. For example, if an English club agreed to sign a player for 10 million euros from a club in the Eurozone country, but sudden unprecedented events caused a devaluation of the pound against the euro, could this make a transfer suddenly too expensive? Yes, um Quasi Quateng's mini budget last year didn't get me thinking. It, it <laughs> did get me shuddering. I'll be honest. As somebody yeah. that um, who you know, sort of vaguely understands a bit about finance, um, but what happened was the value of the pound did fall. So therefore, if you had made a purchase and you had agreed to pay in in dollars or euro, all of a sudden, from a sterling perspective, that increase in cost was was pretty unpleasant. What clubs are doing, or rather what some clubs are doing, especially the the, the elite clubs, is they are hedging currency payments. So let's say that we sign a player for 100 million euro and we're paying 25% immediately and then three installments of 25 million euro um, on an annual basis over the next three years. That's that's fairly standard uh, sort of type of deal. What you can do is that you arrange to buy currency in one year's time um, through what's known as a forward contract, or you can do that via a a forward option. And this 
This is what's referred to as hedging. So you agree to buy the currency at the same time as you agree to pay the money to the club in you know, Germany, Spain, Italy, Portugal, wherever it happens to be. And, and that way, um, because you've agreed a fixed price for the currency, you limit um, any financial losses. Um, if you don't take that approach, then you leave the club exposed to substantial financial uh, losses on on currency exchange, um, and uh, you know it, it's a case of fingers crossed. And certainly, when I go through the accounts of individual clubs, um, I do quite often see reference to currency gains and currency losses. You you don't know what they're going to be at the time of the deal. You know, if, if I knew what the the sterling to dollar exchange rate was going to be in twelve months' time. We wouldn't be having this conversation now because I'd be living on my own private island, um, you know, with a yacht and a few helicopters and uh, probably an exploding volcano as well for entertainment. Um, so, if because of the uncertainties with regards to currency markets, we are seeing clubs increasingly use hedging deals in order to mitigate any potential currency losses that they could make. Ken, I'd feel really left out if you and Guy were living on your own <laughs> private island with volcanoes and solid gold yachts, and I'm still here in Norbury. You mentioned earlier the, the price of the promotion from the championship, uh, and this question is from Seeker Rye. Uh, on a similar theme, the seeker says clubs getting promoted from the championship to the Premier League can expect to earn a minimum of £100 million, we're told. My question is, how much do clubs in other countries like Spain, Germany, Italy and France expect to earn for getting promoted to their top league? That's an interesting question, Kieran, I mean. It is, it is. Um, it, it does vary from country to country. But if we take uh, if we take La Liga as an example, of one of the other big four leagues in Europe, um, you would go from earning around about €7 million, Euro, which is, what, £6 million. Pounds. So, so that's less than, than clubs in the championship get, for example. You would go from £7 million to 45 whereas in the championship you would go from 8 to 100 As far as uh, the Bundesliga, League 1 and um, uh, Serie A are concerned, it's not quite as big, um, but it's still uh, it's still transformative because you now are going to be on television. You're going to be hosting Bayern Munich or Barcelona, or, um, but there were there were some figures which have come out in the last sort of twenty four to forty eight hours, and, and you've got to give credit here to the EFL. Um, you know, record attendances uh, last season, uh, the the fifth most watched um, league. In uh, world football, uh, never mind European football, you know uh, uh, the EFL Championship has more has more people attending it than than the French top division, which mm. which is an amazing achievement, and, and it is a great product. Um, so the, the step ups in the Premier League are the biggest. Um, we had Neil Doncaster on the show a few weeks ago. The difference between the the Championship. And the Premiership is is around about half a million pounds as far as TV money is concerned. The big step up um, when it comes to Scottish football isn't actually from TV. It's the fact that you've got you-know-who and you-know-who too coming <laughs> to town uh, you know, for two or three matches. And that has a big impact on, on gate receipts. So you're going to get tweets now, Kieran, from Celtic and Rangers fans saying, which, which order are they in? Who's you-know-who? <laughs> and who's you-know-who too? <laughs> um, our next question, Kieran, is it's from Brent Wall. Uh, it's less of a question than more of a kind of, um, I, I suppose, it, I don't know if there is an emoji for raised eyebrows. But it's, I think it's asking you to sort of comment on a point, basically. Uh, Brent says, my ears pricked up last year and I heard that Oxford United have been bought by a group which included a ninja Bakri. Uh, hopefully, Oxford United will have a better experience when the Bakri family owned the Brisbane Roar. Admittedly, it was Nurin Bakri that owned the Brisbane Roar, not the Mindra, but still the same family. Because highlights of the Bakri family's ownership of the Brisbane Roar included Ange Postacoglu leaving the club after two titles, unpaid ground rent, unpaid utility bills, Brett Holman taking legal action for unpaid insurance, 
that the club received but didn't pass on. Luke Bratton quitting the club for unpaid superannuation. Robbie Fowler starting a formal dispute process for wrongful dismissal and so on. So, uh, first of all, can you reassure Brent that the, the two sides of the Bakri family are, are different people and maybe one's more responsible than the other? I can't give that reassurance. Oh. Uh, I think we have said with uh, – but that doesn't mean that, that there is an issue. Um, I think we made our observation with regards to the Oyston family at Blackpool that uh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, or I think it we expressed at the time, the shit doesn't fall far <laughs> from the arsehole. Um, so I, I, I can't comment with regard to this. I think it's a case of, of let's watch and see. All that I would say is, again, yeah, I think we have given praise where it's due. Um, the EFL have upped their game when it comes to new owners. It doesn't mean that that's always going to work, as we've seen with regards to issues at Wigan Athletic. Um, and the, the, those, those players are still unpaid. Um, I, I'll try to speak to one of our sports lawyers' friends to to try to get a definitive answer because I, I know I've I've read that if, uh, if if you're not paid for 14 days, um, potentially you know, your your contract could could be ripped up. And we did see at Southend one of the players walk away after a, a series of uh, of non-payments from yet another repeat offender in the shape of Ron Martin. Um, so there doesn't appear to be any issues at present. That, that's all we, we can say. And, and again, there, there's no reason why um, you know the, the offspring of somebody who, who doesn't behave particularly well, you know, they 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 don't carry the same evil gene. It doesn't work like that. So so let's wait and see. Mm. Our penultimate question, Kieran, comes from Tim Sparks, who probably isn't related to. Uh, John Sparks, which is one of the funniest people I've ever worked with, uh, because I know John Sparks was a made-up name, so he won't be related. Tim says, I think we can all agree that time-wasting, brackets, game management in new money, is one irritating element of football that we'd all like to see the back of, unless we're 1-0 up with two minutes to go away at Preston when it's completely condoned. Uh, <laughs> see, that's the problem, isn't it? Because I don't, I don't mind a bit of time-wasting, really. It's, it's like Tim says... One person's time wasting is another person's clever game management. But Tim says, Optostats show that in the Premier League in 21 22, the ball was in play for an average of only 55 minutes and three seconds per match. My question is this, says Tim. If football introduced a similar timekeeping rule to sports like ice hockey, which stops the clock every time the game stops, and football fans were then in the stadium for much longer, what financial benefit, if any, would there be to clubs in regards to extra takings at food and drink stands, but also extra advertising opportunities with TV rights? And also, Kieran, I'd add, I mean, that would be grossly unfair on the Porsons Arms, for example. Now, how much will their takings go down if we're stuck in the Sellers Park for another hour? Each week, no one wants to be. There's several games this season, Kieran, where you don't want it to continue. Fifty-five minutes. <laughs> the, the Everton nil-nil draw. Fifty-five minutes of football was enough. If we'd been given the option to stop at fifty-five minutes and go home, we would have all taken it. But it's a, it's an interesting question, and it is one that's increasingly being asked. With with the ticket prices in the Premier League going up and up, people are starting to say, "Well, we expect better value for our money." Yes, um, and there have been tables produced by Opta and other organisations with regards to the amount of, of ball in playtime. Um, the the club which consistently uh, plays more football than any other is Manchester City, mainly because once they've got the ball, yeah. you can't get it off them, and, and they and, they, and they, they've got no desire for it to go um, out of the pitch. Um, and then we've got uh, we've got goalkeepers who have, yeah, and and this is one thing which uh, does wind me up. Goalkeepers who, who, when they save the ball in the last ten minutes, feel the necessity to dive on the ground, clutching the ball for a long period of time. And um, personally, I'd introduce a rule that you can kick them. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that would make them think twice. Um, but th- this is this is something which has been um, discussed uh, at FIFA level. Um, the only my, my concern is I believe that David Ellery was one of the people oh, that was involved Jesus, in making really? this decision. Yeah, and, and he's 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 not he's not the favourite of either of us, is he? Well, um, I mean, he'd he'd you'd think he'd want the game to be over quickly so he can get off the tiffin. 
I imagine. <laughs> Get down to Glindbourne for the. Um, imagine you didn't well, see him. Don't don't, don't don't knock Glindbourne. I, I wasn't going to. I was about to say I was, I'm surprised you didn't see him down there last season, last week, giving unnecessary yellow cards to the opera singers for not being posh enough. Carry on. Yeah, I, I think if if you drew a uh, a Venn diagram of people who'd been to see the Dead Kennedys followed by uh, Don Giovanni uh, at Glindbourne, <laughs> I might have been quite a. Quite a low overlap there. Uh, oh, it's featuring you and, me. You and, you and David Miller, I'd go for. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Fair enough. Um, so th- th- one of the areas that FIFA have been looking at is this very issue. And to be fair to the authorities, we, we did see in the 2022 World Cup a significant increase in the amount of injury time. And we have seen that in some Premier League games as well. And personally, I think it's something which should be encouraged. Um, I, I, I would go for saying 30 minutes of ball in play each half um, would be appropriate. And that would that would discourage time wasting. Um, I'd also introduce a sin bin for um, time wasting, you know, an automatic sin bin. You know, for, for, we all we all know what they do. Um, it, it's it's low level disruption, which winds me up. You know, those those players that stand over the ball when a free kick's about to be taken, or those players that will kick the ball away ten yards when a free kick's about to be taken. It just gets on my wick. You, know, you, you play football for heaven's sake, Kira. Um, Kira, I guarantee when you played Sunday football, that's exactly the sort of thing you would do. Oh, me? Oh, yeah, I was terrible. Of course, exactly. Every every person listening to this is a hypocrite because when your team does it, you you of course it's fine. It's only when the other teams do it. It's I'm, I'm not nearly as bothered by this as, as many football fans. The idea that sim bins, that's me. I know my season tickets go. We start having sim bins. We're not having that, Kieran. This, this, this is Great Britain for the love of God. I, I, I'm not that fussed about time. I don't – you do notice it if you're, if you're one deal down with five minutes to go. But if you're winding up with five minutes to go, you applaud it. Let's be fair. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I, if, if you're paying a lot of money to go and watch a match, I want to watch a match, well, not people oh, I, cheating. I, 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 I take that on board, but uh, the, the, I don't know how many people are in the half weight stand, the home bit. I, let's say there are 6,000 people in the half weight stand, a lot of whom will be complaining about this very issue, 3,000 of whom don't get back to their seats till halfway through the second half because they're finishing oh, their drink. That's- that's a that's a valid criticism. Yeah. Uh, that's another. Yeah, again, I, I'd I'd kick every. I, I, remember, remember, sort of the the old days where if somebody was walking out of Wimbledon, you could go and take, you could move in and take their ticket. If somebody's that's not the in their seat by the time the second <laughs> half starts, <laughs> kick them out and let and, and have a queue of proper fans outside who take their places. That that would deal with it. it well, that also, you know, that, it's, embar- that, it's embarrassing. Embarrassing. You, you look at you look at cup finals. You know, it was an absolute disgrace. When, the when Wem- the, the Wembley Hospitality Brigade. Yeah, yeah, oh. I agree. I agree. Uh, have, have we answered this question? Yes. Um, <laughs> well, no, we've had a, I've had a moan. Um, so could football introduce a, 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 a stopwatch and take that responsibility away from the referee? The simple answer is yes. It was interesting, however, that the main opposition to this came from the players' union, oh, who okay. said... Our players are already playing more minutes of football or more minutes on the pitch, not necessarily playing football we just mentioned, uh, than ever before because of the increased proliferation of matches, um, especially you know, meaningless matches. Um, and effectively, this was this would increase the amount of time being played on a match-by-match basis by, by 10%, and we would see more soft muscle injuries and we'd see more players having to retire early. And there was another report that came out this week that if you're a professional footballer, you are three times more likely to contract dementia yeah. than somebody who's yeah. not been a professional. Yeah. So footballers' welfare, which is something which gets completely disregarded, um, is uh, is something which has to be taken into consideration here. Well, interesting, Kieran, in uh, Guardiola's it's probably an hour after the game finished last night when he ended up being interviewed live on the pitch by BT Sport and he was clearly exhausted but he without being asked uh, there's a couple of minutes of how elated he was at winning uh, the tournament um, and a few swear words and then basically launched into an attack on UEFA and FIFA because most of his players in fact probably all of them have to report back for international duty Hmm. in 10 days, two weeks' time. And he says then after that, 
we've got a tour. And then he says, he says, UEFA and FIFA are killing the players. So, yes. again, you know, we all talk about how they're professional footballers. Of course, they can play uh, yeah, two games a week, whatever it is. But clearly, the PFA and people in the game disagree. And also, Kieran, I think I think I probably undersold. You probably were the only person who, who saw the Dead Kennedys and then Don Giovanni in the same week. But if anybody listening can gainsay that, um, yes. and that's one of the things I love about football. I get really cross when people say, they assume if you're a football fan, you have no interest in anything else. I'm going to the theatre on, on Tuesday night and I'm going to mm. the theatre next Wednesday. I love the theatre, but I don't. I, I love it in a different way to the way I love football. If I could only watch, you know, if you gave me a choice between football and theatre for the rest of my life, or football and ballet, or football and opera, of course I would choose football. Well, it doesn't mean to say you can't love them both. I love the fact that you end up having, it's normally with Julian Chenery, but uh, <laughs> I, I, there's a couple of <laughs> baffled Bournemouth fans who found their way into the Porson's arms before that game. <laughs> one, of them, one of them just led to me and said, do you do talk about musicals every week? I said, well, no, not every, <laughs> not every week. Sometimes it's ballet, you know. Sometimes it's opera, you know. Um, our last question, Kieran, comes from Kevin Kassan, and I think this is a very interesting one. This Kevin says, what are the costs for clubs to have a police presence at football matches? Does this differ fixture by fixture, league by league? And I'd be very interested in your answer to this, Kieran, because we hear clubs uh, lately, in the past 10 seasons, say, ah, you'll notice how few police there are in the ground. That's because we prefer to have stewards looking after it and it's also an indication of how safe the product is. But there are more cynical people, Kieran, not us, who say, no, it's more to do with the, the cost of having police in the ground. So I'd be interested in your answer to this. Yeah, we did have uh, PC Darren Balkum on the show a couple of years ago. And did we? he was saying they, they do a risk assessment. They effectively, a, a football club and the local safety officer will look at things on a match-by-match match basis and effectively say this is a this is an A, B or a C game. And in an A game, we'll have a greater police presence. If it's yeah, if if Palace are playing Bournemouth, you know, there's there's no history of of angst, angstiness between the two sets of fan bases. It's uh, yeah, there's nothing riding on the match. We, we don't need police officers. Yeah, we'll we'll have we'll have the police around outside the ground. Um and, and we'll do the internal stewarding. So if it's if it's going to be a feisty match, um, then A, you'll have more stewards and B, you'll have police. There have been disputes um, between some clubs and local police forces with regards to the, the level of policing historically. But uh, I think most police forces now have uh, you know, specific, specific officers who, who deal with things on both a home and away basis. And um, they... Uh, They've, they've got a, a fairly good relationship. So I, I don't know the actual costs. Uh, we, we could do a freedom of information on this. Yeah. Um, I, I did think about it, but uh, uh, it, it does take a wee bit of time to get a response. So, so I, I might do that uh, for, a, for a few clubs uh, just to see what the response is. Um, but it, it does very much uh, vary by fixture by fixture um, and, and also league by league because um, – some some leagues and some countries have more volatile fans than others, but uh, yeah, I've, I've someone that, that in the main I've I've always found the majority of police forces an absolute delight. I remember I went to uh, I went to Wolverhampton uh, last season, and uh, uh, I was going for a curry for a, with a mate afterwards, and we went went and asked one of the local coppers, and they were absolutely brilliant. Yeah, they gave us a full SP as to the curry houses to to choose and avoid, uh, and, and we had a great time on the back of that. Mm. The Metropolitan Police, less nice. I'll say no more than that. Well, I, yeah, I'm not going to resort to childish name-calling about police forces, Kieran, but uh, in our experience, the Sussex Police are not that nice either. Um, in times gone by, I mean, recently, Kieran, f- football fans are treated as human beings for the most part. Mm by policemen, but certainly in the 70s and 80s, I, I had nothing but contempt and some level of fear. South Yorkshire Police, yeah, the, West, horrible. the West Midlands Police and the South Wales Police were shameful the way they, they treated football fans. And Well, there was no football f- police force that treated football fans uh, properly. The, the police do have still some influence on football, though, Kieran, indirectly, because there's a lot of people saying how, how, how brilliant it was that the FA had scheduled 
last weekend's cup final, the Manchester derby for three o'clock. But there's nothing to do with the FA. It was the police who made it uh, a three o'clock kickoff because they didn't want too much drinking going ahead beforehand, did they? Yes, yes, um, especially with no trains. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and that and uh, yeah, that that seemed to to work reasonably well. We were discussing. We said, we wonder. I, I mean, I don't know if there is somebody with the surname Gone Mad. But if you <laughs> if you if you had the surname Gone Mad, you'd have to become a policeman just so you'd be PC Gone Mad. <laughs> How much would the mail on Sunday love it if they could find an actual PC Gone Mad? Or a PC woke gone mad. Um, uh, no, there's definitely only you as at the Ted Kennedy's in Glenville. Thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, that would be very kind of you. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. If you have a question you'd like answered in the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. We'll be back on Thursday with a news pod. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, thank you to everybody for all the support for the show. The, the, the football season has has now finished, so there'll be no football finance stories for the next <laughs> three months until we start again in August. So we're looking forward to putting our feet up for two months. Is is that how it works? Yeah, um, remember a lot of our a lot of our listeners are accountants, so they won't get irony. Uh, <laughs> so perhaps you better, you better say to them, we will be carrying on. <laughs> yes, we will be carrying on. Yes, yes, yes. We've still got we've we've still got a naughty step off season. Um, but thank you for everybody from Patreon. Very kind for as little as one pound a month, you can support the show. I think if you pay a little bit more, you can even get it advert free if if you if you want to uh, whiz through the show a little bit quicker. Uh, there's another way that you can support the show. Um, and that's to go onto your uh, your app and to give us a review. Um, and you could even say you'd rather have the show presented by two of my favourite people in sport, Claire Balding and Jack Grealish. I love Jack Grealish. I think he's absolutely fantastic. If I if I grew up, I'd want to be Jack Grealish as a footballer because he's, he doesn't talk about going in ice baths. He doesn't talk about uh, sort of you know fastidiously watching what he eats and, and uh, does. He just wants to go and play football and have a good time, and and he and he does that. And in both accounts, he's a fantastic brother, he's a fantastic son, and everybody loves him at both City and Villa. He he does. It's funny, isn't it? Because he looks he looks like a bit of a uh, a weasel, doesn't he? He looks like a wrongen, basically. But everyone says he's a not, and, he, and I love seeing him interviewed after games. It, like last night again, he was he was so keen to find out where his dad was. In, yes. in the crowd and get to see his his family. I, also, I love it. There's a calendar you can get that each month has a different photograph of his calves, which <laughs> I don't know why I'm strangely interested in it. Also, he's got a lovely voice. I, I imagine Claire would. I mean, Claire would do most of the talking because she's brilliant. But I think Claire and Jack Grealish would actually get on very well. Oh, I, I get, I get, I get oh, yeah, fine. I'd listen to that absolutely. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Bye. I'm for the